Hi, I'm Melissa Chen. And I'm Angel Eduardo. We're the hosts of the Fair Perspectives podcast, and we're excited to announce our show is moving to a new YouTube channel. Thank you to all of our listeners who have helped make Fair Perspectives the success that it is, with enough content to need its own home. Keep following the show at our new channel, Fair Perspectives, with the link in the description below. Please subscribe there to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. We're thrilled to have you as part of the Fair community. Welcome to Fair Perspectives, the official podcast of the pro-human movement brought to you by the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. I'm your host, Melissa Chen, and my co-host, who you will hear from shortly, is Angel Eduardo. Today, we're speaking with John Wood Jr., a former nominee for Congress, former vice chairman of the Republican Party of Los Angeles County, musical artist, and a noted writer and speaker on subjects including racial and political reconciliation. He is also a national leader for Braver Angels, a nonprofit dedicated to political depolarization that runs workshops, debates, and other events where red and blue participants attempt to better understand one another's positions and discover their shared values. In this episode, we discuss why John is so suited to tackling the seemingly intractable problem of polarization, the issues with media today, the legitimacy crisis in our institutions, how to maintain social cohesion, how to get society talking again, and the jarring implications of Will Smith's Oscar slap. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Mr. John Wood Jr. John Wood Jr., thank you so much for joining us. Angel Eduardo, Melissa Chen, it is good to be with you too. Um, very yeah. excited. I, I mean, I, I love hearing from you and I, I love the opportunity to get to chat with you. I've been lucky to do it a couple of times briefly, but this is our first kind of, uh, extended conversation. Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think the, one of the most interesting things about you of many, many interesting things, but one of them is just the way that, um, you've spoken about how your particular upbringing has shaped your way of, of interacting and what you actually do now for your, your living, what your mission on earth is, you know, as, as people probably know, you are, you are, uh, with braver angels and that, that mission of depolarizing America is an important one. Um, so I guess the best thing to, to start with would probably be, why do you think you are so well suited to that particular mission of bridging the divide between you know, this bifurcation that we have? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it's certainly not because I necessarily set out to, you know, educate myself in a way that would make me, you know, sort of uh, pre-trained, if you will, for this kind of work. Um, but, you know, many folks will know, but for those who don't, I come from a family background that is, you know, multicultural, uh, biracial in the household that I grew up in and, and bipartisan. My mother is uh, 
we were black Democrats from inner city Los Angeles. My father is a, uh, is a conservative white Republican from Tennessee. Uh, he didn't become a Republican until later on, but he was always very much sort of the, the emphasizer of traditional American values in our household. And he also grew up very wealthy. My mother came from a you know, more, more modest background. And so growing up, I um, had sort of three native environments uh, in my life. On weekends, I would go and visit my uh, mother's family, uh, relatives in, in Inglewood, inner city LA, jump on the bus with uh, my, my young uncle. And we'd go from place to place and got used to the idea that there are certain neighborhoods I, you know, we didn't want to step foot in if we had the wrong color shoelaces on or else we might not make it out the other side of them. Over holidays, we would visit, I would visit my, uh, me and my brother would visit my uh, father's relatives, uh, including my grandparents who lived in uh, La Jolla, which is an affluent coastal community uh, in San Diego County. Uh, they had a million dollar, multi-million dollar view of the ocean in a house that was a few blocks down the street from Mitt Romney's house, uh, the one with the car elevator, if you uh, recall that being a you know, topic of 2012. <laughs> campaign. But from day to day, I grew up in multicultural uh, suburban Culver City, California, uh, which is where the motion picture studios are largely concentrated. I went to a school district that at some point was ranked the the fourth most diverse school district in America, largely uh, sort of progressive, socially progressive area. My friends growing up were Korean and Japanese and Jewish and Arab and Indian and, and Black and Latino. Uh, and uh, me as a mixed kid, uh, I just sort of fit right into it. So I didn't travel a lot geographically, but I traveled extensively socioeconomically. And that, in retrospect, I realized is, is not a very common thing to have that sort of breadth of cultural exposure growing up. And what it sort of revealed for me or emphasized for me as I looked at the sort of disconnect in communication and understanding both in my own family, between my parents particularly, but also just sort of across this tapestry of perspectives and and worldviews, was that you had really good people who had very, you know, uh, compelling life experiences, in many cases, very much unable to understand or communicate with people on the other ends of some of these these different uh, life journeys, if you will. And I always sort of naturally found myself kind of interpreting people for people, right, across some of these different divides and developed a real passion for doing so. Because I always felt that, you know, if I get what you're saying, if I, if I know you, if I love you, if I have a connection with you and so forth. Um, and yet I also feel this way about these folks on the other side of this identity question or what have you, you know, uh, it seems to me to, to be the case that there should be some potential for each of you coming to understand each other. And maybe I can be helpful in making that happen. So, you know, that was sort of an organic passion of mine early on that eventually became something of, of, a, of a vocation, you know, in, in politics uh, until today. So you eventually um, became the, the brand ambassador. Is that, is that your role at Braver Angels? National ambassador. National I ambassador. The grandiose sort of, sort of title. Uh, but, you know, the... Uh, the function there is I'm something of a roving uh, sort of spokesperson for the organization uh, to a degree for sort of the larger depolarization movement as it's forming. Uh, but the reason I use the term ambassador instead of spokesperson is, is because 
you know, Braver Angels is a membership organization, and anybody who's involved in it uh, has the, the right to speak for uh, the organization, mm-hmm. for the community, from the vantage point of their own particular sort of reasons for joining us and their own particular understanding of the mission. So I speak for Braver Angels in something of an official capacity, but we don't limit uh, it to just me in terms of who has the right to represent uh, the work that we do and what we, what we uh, stand for. So it sounds like you guys have your work really cut out for you because Bravery Angels um, is devoted, is a bipartisan organization devoted to actually depolarize America, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it just seems like at least since, you know, in the last four years, probably before, I think the seeds were planted before that, um, the, the depolarization problem almost seems intractable right now. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what is your diagnosis? How did we, how did America get here? <laughs> so look, I mean, it's it's multi it's multivariate to be to be sure. There are a few critical pieces that I think analytically are worth putting putting on the table. On the one hand, I, I would I would point to the fact that well, certainly we're aware of the fact that the nature of partisan politics shifted coming out of the 1960s in in particular. We once had a period of time, and this is fairly you know, well discussed at this point, where uh, party affiliation was not so deeply tied to identity. The the parties were more sort of, if you will, kind of fraternal organizations that were really about broadening consensus across the ideological spectrum. And so you had liberal Republicans, you had conservative Democrats. Uh, these were oftentimes people who, you know, in higher in higher elected offices had served together in World War II. There was cultural commonality. But ultimately, owing to many of the cultural shifts of the 1960s, you had a situation of merge in which the parties became ideologically sort of homogeneous or increasingly so. So we're now, you know, your most, uh, you know, your most liberal Republican is more conservative than your most conservative Democrat. If you're looking at the House of Representatives or the United States Senate, and that sort of set the stage for a tribalizing of party politics that has prevented the parties from being able to do business and that has kind of, you know, merged with other phenomena in, Amer- in American life to sort of tribalize the American people. But some of the, some of that broader sort of social sort of balkanization uh, owes to, I think, a largely organic phenomenon of just sort of an increasing diversification of the American body politic. And that in a few different ways. And so. You know, you had an increase in immigration in the 1960s, of course. Uh, Latino community comes in in a very powerful way to sort of shift the the demographic landscape. You have the social changes that followed the civil rights movement, of course, women's rights movement, gay rights movement, and so forth, the LGBT uh, community. But in the midst of a demographic sort of diversifying of American society, you also have a diversification of the voices that kind of rise up in American institutions, right? And so part of what happens is, you know, to take the African-American context, which is, you know, what I'm sort of most closely familiar with, as you have Black people sort of rising up in corporations, in the academy, in the university, in the political parties, particularly in the Democratic Party, you have narratives that, of American history, of American identity, that sort of wind up over time increasingly sort of colliding 
with long-standing sort of narratives and understanding of sort of what the country you know is, what defines us historically, and so forth. And we really see that crystallized now, you know, in in 2020 and so forth. You have the 1619 projects and all these things. But this broader sort of phenomenon had been building for for a while. And so it's just to say, and you know, that's not to render a judgment on it good or bad for the purposes of analysis. It is, however, to say that there is a project project of sort of cultural understanding, which you know needed to be sort of engaged in a thoughtful way. But that was made, I think, largely impossible by the advent, by the diversification of the, the media environment, the 24-hour news cycle, the, you know, uh, the, the advent of talk radio, and then eventually social media, right? To where suddenly you have media incentives, both in the traditional media space and in the new media space that are aimed not at creating large consensus narratives to bring people together, but rather aimed at achieving market share to increase your ownership of a conservative viewership or a progressive viewership by driving home a polarizing narrative that not all Americans can buy into that doesn't seek to bridge divides between all Americans uh, in the way that might've been the case in the days of Walter Cronkite and, and, and others. And then on the social media level, we do that just as individuals and influencers to kick up our own Twitter followings and our own Instagram uh, likes. And so these things kind of collide as a perfect storm. The party structure, the fact that American society already was becoming more culturally diverse in ways that require us to get to know each other better once again. And then technology on top of that, it means we've got a real problem. Yeah, I wonder if, uh, if you're familiar with this book. Uh, that I, I'm constantly re- uh, recommending it to people and talking about it. I'm actually amazed that this is probably the first time I'm mentioning it on this podcast. Uh, it's called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If, are you familiar with it, John? I've heard the title, but no, I'm not familiar. Okay. Well, it, it's it's a it's a brilliant book. I mean, and the thing I always say about it is that it was published the year I was born, 1985, but it might as well have been written yesterday. Right. Um, with very few tweaks, it it, it would be indistinguishable. But it speaks to one of the things that you just mentioned, actually, about the way that our discourse shifted when we went from primarily print media uh-huh. to visual media, mm-hmm. when, when everyone had a television and when we decided to shift everything onto television, even our news and even our, you know, our informational sort of media streams, uh-huh. we inadvertently kind of switched the paradigm to where the primary thing wasn't the information. The primary thing wasn't the discourse. It was now about entertainment because of just the function of the medium itself, right? Everything in Medium is the message, right? Yeah. Yeah, in a sense. But yeah. yeah. But in a sense, basically, it's just that, you know, everything on TV needs to be entertaining first. Mm -hmm. It can be informational, right? Sesame Street is great. Sesame Street, you can learn things from. I learn things from. But that's always going to be secondary to it's got to be really bright with beautiful colors. The editing has to be in such a way to grab your attention and to keep it because mm. entertainment is the main thing. And there was a there was a transitionary period where, you know, they you know what they called the, the news, the news shows on any given channel, you know, the lost leaders like those are the things that don't make us any money. <laughs> we don't get any advertising dollars, but it's a it's a kind of public good that we need to just get in there and make happen. But then we get the 24-hour news cycle and then we get, you know, s- certain people saying, well, there's no reason why we can't make the news entertaining. And suddenly, 
you know, we, we've gotten to the point where it used to be, I think this is in the book where, you know, Abraham Lincoln, without even necessarily running for office, is going around debating people. And the debates, you know, each side would take, you know, someone would take three hours to make their case. And Lincoln would say, you know, uh, I have a lot to respond to. Why don't we break for dinner? Everyone go home, have dinner and come back. Right. And uh, and then I'll give my response. And people actually did that. Mm-hmm. They went home, they ate, and they came back for another four hours of conversation. But yeah. now we have, you know, you know, uh, Mr. Sanders, uh, what is your foreign policy plan? You have 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? You know, we, we all pine for the days of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, uh, of course. Right. Actually, you know, I think, if I remember correctly, I think Newt Gingrich actually proposed a series of Lincoln-Douglas debates with his uh, GOP primary uh, opponents. And, you know, somehow or other Fox News didn't pick up on the opportunity. They have seven hours going back and forth on the on the issues. Right. Now, 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 history is is, yeah. is complicated. Um, you know, yeah. some people would would be quick to you know remind you. And I don't know if the author talks about this in, in um, amusing ourselves to death. But, you know, you go back to the days of you know, yellow journalism, William Randolph mm-hmm. Hearst. You guys, did you guys yeah. ever see uh, Citizen Kane? You know, of course. Yeah. I mean, journalism in those days was sensationalist. It was misleading, and it led to terrible consequences for for mm-hmm. the real world. I mean, I guess you know, I guess Hearst got us into a war with the Spanish based on you know false reporting and so forth. So you know, it's it's not to say that this dynamic has not been the case, but I but I do take your point very much to heart because. When you add in the visual dynamic and so forth, it does create a context in modern society where, you know, not only are things sensationalized and we are back to sort of prioritizing theatrics over over truth and substance, if you will, but our attention spans have grossly diminished, you know? Right. And, and there's, there's, uh, there's literature, you know, uh, tracing this this out. I mean, I, I'm not going to get this exactly right, and I can't give you an exact source, but I encourage people to fact check me on this. But I believe there's research that shows that you know, back in the 50s and 60s, you know, Americans had an attention span that allowed us to sort of focus on average on a single subject for, you know, like, I think 30 or 40 minutes or something like that, or maybe longer. And that's literally down to something like 30 and 40 seconds. I mean, it's some, mm. some you know, uh, utterly sort of like, you know, astonishing yeah. devolution in our capacity to just sustain attention on a single topic or a single idea, you know? Mm. Um, so I, I, as uh, people uh, will, you know, some folks will know and maybe complain about, I buck against that trend through my long kind of stem <laughs> monologue and sort of style. And maybe yeah. I should check myself even right now, but it is a part of the problem because the truth is that reality is complicated. Reality is nuanced, Right. And if we expect the important issues of our time to be digestible in a way that allows us to actually reckon with them in the space of a 30 second soundbite or a 10 minute argumentative, you know, talking head segments on a cable news uh, channel, then there's no hope for the discourse of democracy. But we do have to find a way to sort of revamp the, the incentive structure of information dissemination in a way that allows us to sort of recapture depth in the conversation while also having that be viable in the political and perhaps commercial marketplace. 
And so on a structural level, that to me is a big part of the project at hand. I am so glad you brought that up because I, I was going to ask you about that uh, specifically because, you know, it strikes me that that if we had social media kind of in, during the lead up to the Iraq war, things might have been different. Mm. And, and so the diversification of media is not necessarily a bad thing. But yeah. it also does lead to what Eric Weinstein calls, you know, the uh, communal sense-making apparatus kind of breaking down. Mm. Um, so, you know, that is kind of where the, the double-edged sword is. And, and I, I think you're absolutely right that it has driven uh, polarization. But if polarization is a good way to check, you know, consensus, right? Like it, it, it challenges the establishment media sometimes. Mm. And, you know, for example, like I, I don't I think also without social media, it might be have been harder for for um, this group of scientists to come together. I don't know whether you, you heard about this group of scientists called Drastic. It's an acronym, um, but they're the ones that came together to actually challenge the media narrative that was very dismissive of the lab leak hypothesis, mm-hmm. you know, um, the Wuhan lab, lab leak hypothesis. And so with, without that, I, I, it's hard to have, you know, when, when you have entrenched interest controlling media and. And, you know, later on, emails leaked that the, um, you know, the scientist that was involved in this nonprofit that was funding it was apparently communicating with Facebook, was on the board and deciding what, what can be posted, what cannot. Ultimately, you know, this is, is what drives people to lose trust in institutions. And I think where we are now is, is exactly that. Like the, the, the polarization is, is extreme also because of a legitimacy crisis. And especially with regard to our institutions, mm. I, I don't know if you have weigh in on just like how how bad is this institutional trust problem? I can weigh. And yeah, <laughs> yeah I can definitely weigh. <laughs> First of all, let me just say that Melissa, you're making you're, you're making a uh, you know a sharp uh, point, and I do agree. I mean, you know, we can sort of you know bathe in nostalgia over the golden age of journalism and so forth, and. You know, it, it is true that, I mean, you know, Walter Cronkite, although I hear that the, you know, the, the idea that he was the most trusted sort of man in America is maybe based on some polls that were not conducted in the most uh, rigorous mm. sort of way. But, uh, you know, it, the irony it, as, as, as a general matter, though, I mean, it is true that we had a common source of information that gave us sort of a common frame of reference as American people and that that attended what on a partisan level was low, you know, an era of extremely low, uh, you know, affective polarization, right? Meaning, you know, personal, bitter, tribal polarization. But, you know, a couple of things to be said, even about that era. One, you know, uh, genuine movement conservatives felt that, you know, the mainstream media, even then, you know, was not on their side, felt that Walter Cronkite was not telling the story of an America that they could entirely sort of relate to. And, you know, th- this was sort of the wing of the movement that produced Barry Goldwater that ultimately would become extreme uh-huh. in the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, uh, mainstream journalists were not popular at the Goldwater Convention in, um, in, in 1960. And there's some stories, stories about that, stories about mainstream journalists, uh, maybe even like bugging Republican uh, candidates and so forth. I say bugging as in, you know, placing recording devices and, and <laughs> oh. whatnot. Yeah, no, no, uh, there's, there's a whole history there to be interrupted that I'm not an expert in, but people feel free to fact check me um, on the specifics of that. Um, the other thing that is very much worth mentioning is that the, the, the low levels of polarization 
in that era between the parties. And, you know, I think it would probably be fair to to think that this, at least up until a certain point, would have been sort of reinforced by the media architecture, was purchased at the cost of, of each party largely being disinterested in including African-Americans in the larger political conversation, right? And so there are ways in which legislation could be passed on a bipartisan basis as long as it was agreed upon by both sides that African-Americans would not be enfranchised in the process. And so in the New, in the New Deal era, for instance, you had housing legislation that was put forward uh, by, uh, by, by Democrats, uh, by liberal Democrats on the basis that it might be uh, integrated, that then received pushback from Southern Democrats who wanted to see such projects be segregated. And Republicans who were opposed to the advent of, you know, the, the, the broadening of, of public housing, period, proposed that such projects could go forward if they were on sort of an integrated basis as a means of killing the legislation. And so the compromise that ultimately comes out is the Democratic Party sort of circling up and saying, OK, in order to keep our folks together, uh, we will pass this legislation to see to it that this housing gets built, but that it will be of no direct benefit to African-Americans, at least in terms of sort of integrating, integrating it together. There are a number of different examples like this in legislative history where either the parties keep together within the party or the parties work together across party lines in ways that are activated only on the basis of excluding the interests of people of color, right? And so you can say that that polarization, that, that lack of polarization is purchased at a cost because to your point, when you have a single institutional sort of center of authority, it does have a tendency to push out dissenting voices. It does have a tendency mm-hmm. to keep, you know, people who might have an insight uh, or an interest in, in, in focusing on some, some aspect of truth that's inconvenient to the parties in power, you know, party small p, that is, you know, they get pushed out. And so social media, and I think that your examples are good ones, the lab leak hypothesis, et cetera, um, social media provides people a way into the conversation where the traditional gatekeepers may not have allowed it before, right? Um, but, you know, you got two problems. One, you know, perhaps the folks who are running the social media company are now themselves <laughs> in great, in sort of grafting into sort of the, the larger established leadership class in ways that reintroduce the gatekeeper problem, perhaps. Uh-huh. And two, it because of all the perverse sort of incentives governing the conversation, broadly speaking, it does what Eric Weinstein said, which is sort of scramble our collective sense-making capacity. And so there's no, you know, uh, there's no silver bullet. All Everything is a matter of acknowledging trade-offs so that we can find balance, right? That's really what it is. And when we, uh, you know, mature enough to be able to accept the fact that there are no perfect solutions, but by working through the trade-offs, we can find progress that, you know, uh, allows us to achieve greater balance and build from there, you know, then we can start, you know, uh, moving, moving it forward. But until that's the case, as long as the balkanization of our, of our political culture leads every institution to seemingly be a vehicle for an ideological agenda, as each one tries to maintain its sort of gatekeeper status in its own universe, then the American people, broadly speaking, will have no reason to trust Congress, media, the universities, the churches, even, 
um, and the other major institutions of society because they increasingly seem like they're not trying to represent the general interests of society, but rather the political, the particular political and social interests of one group or another. Yeah, it's reminding me, I don't know if this is a fair analogy, but it's reminding me of, you know, uh, a dictator's approval ratings. Right? <laughs> like, well, it's easy to get really right. good and super right. high approval ratings when everyone is terrified or unable to speak otherwise. Yeah. Um, but maybe a fairer analogy is, is to that of, you know, growing through adolescence into adulthood, right? You know, it's when, when your parents are in charge and they make the rules and you must follow them and there's very little you can do about it, there's a much easier way to maintain order in a household, right? But as you start growing older and as you start kind of asserting your independence and asserting your ability to make your own decisions and separating from, you know, the, the authority of, of your parents, something comes along for the ride there, mm-hmm. which is responsibility. Yeah. Now, now you must grapple with the responsibility of you having more autonomy and you having more authority over yourself because, you know, it, the dynamic has shifted. You have now, because you have more autonomy and more authority over yourself, you now have a greater effect on the dynamics within the house. Mm-hmm. Right. And so you have to now be mindful of what am I doing and how is it changing the dynamic here? Mm-hmm. I think, I think it, we're in an analogous state in our, in our country because of the way that we've grown and the way that our discourse has changed. You know, Walter Cronkite giving us whatever the narrative is, you know, however compromised, however exclusive it is to particular voices and groups, it was easier to maintain an idea of, you know, everything is fine. We're all in this together. Everybody understands the same reality, which I think, you know, the evolution towards people being able to speak out and people being able to say, that's not my reality at all. Here's a completely different one. Now we need to put them together and see what happens. I think that's a good thing, but the responsibility then becomes, well, now it's very easy for us to fall into silos and, and actually hear each other out even less. And, and the cohesion suddenly becomes a responsibility of ours to maintain. You know, do you, do you think that's a fair analogy? Would you say? Yeah. Well, you know, keeping it on brand with the fairness, I would, I would <laughs> um, I didn't even think of that actually. Oh well, no, I no, uh, but I do think it, I do think it's fair. Um, to your point, I heard that Vladimir Putin is polling very well in Russia yeah. right now. Yeah. You know, while his right. country starves, <laughs> while he loses, uh, you know, yeah. uh, war and so forth. I think that your last point is the thing to really sort of seize upon, which is that it becomes up to us then uh, to sort of maintain the kind of social, you know, the the, the cohesion, right, of the social fabric. Um, It's part of the innate tension within liberal democracy, small l liberal democracy, a society of liberty, right, where ideally we have social mobility, people can speak freely, that the hierarchical um, structures of society will come under pressure. They will shift and flex and, you know, things will inevitably be changed and reformed as new groups find their voice, as different interests sort of mature and, 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 and leverage and, and bring different arguments to the table that move things in different directions. 
But the thing beyond having sort of, you know, a sophisticated constitutional structure that's meant to sort of leverage conflict and disagreement into compromise and progress, but the thing that makes even that <clears throat> essential sort of, you know, uh, architecture of, of civic life um, operational, operational, <laughs> if you will, is, is sort of a core sense of, of basic trust and goodwill between the American people, between the people of any society, that in our society, particularly because, you know, we are a society founded on ideas, right? Founded on principles, much more than we are founded on the idea of blood and soil, our racial history, history of racism and all that notwithstanding. It means that, you know, we're not going to be able to maintain a larger national unity by appealing to the fact that we're all, you know, Frenchmen have a common ancestry or appealing to the fact that we're all Jewish or that we're all, you know, this, that or the other, because we're not. Um, we have to be able to sustain a commitment to ideals, but even in the absence of a deeper commitment to sort of a shared, you know, overarching political philosophy, our common humanity still has to resonate within us as a basis for wanting the good for other people in a way that compels us to act honorably and fairly, right? In a way that compels us to, on a basic sort of level, uplift the idea that it is, that it is desirable for us to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Now, you know, everybody's not going to fall in love with the golden rule. And even though you've got two billion Christians around the world, that, you know, that biblical principle is not necessarily one that's taken very seriously in a day-by-day how I live my life sort of sense, even necessarily by, by most of them. But you don't need everybody to sort of buy into that. You need a core of society, left, right, black, white, religious, secular, et cetera, et cetera, to ultimately, and certainly within the institutional centers of our society, sort of embrace the idea that ultimately, you know, there's some commonality to our greater interests on the basis of the fact that we are human beings. And part of what that reality is, is the fact that true human flourishing is a product of our being in relationships of trust that can only be sort of activated if somebody is willing to go first in saying that I believe you have value on the basis of the fact that you're a human being and that you are not fundamentally dissimilar from me. And you can provide a religious sort of, you know, argument for that, made in the image of God, et cetera, et cetera. But it was that spiritual instinct that Martin Luther King Jr. tapped into, that sort of moral conviction that ultimately part of human nature is that we have a conscience that can be spoken to. And that if we can signal to our enemies the fact that even as we have deep disagreements with them and are willing to do combat and on a political stage and on a social level, that ultimately we mean them well, that the changes we seek are meant for the good of all humanity, even if we have a particular sort of urgency in achieving, in this case, equal rights before the law, you know, for, for African-Americans, for people who are marginalized directly in that context. But the larger outcome we're seeking is one in which black and white, southern and urban, uh, liberal and conservative can live together in a community of equals where we can genuinely be friends, right? So long as we have an understanding that it is a part of human nature to be that way, 
that we have these better angels of our nature to be spoken to, we can have confidence in the idea that there's progress to be made by appealing to that. But if we lose sight of, of that and, and come to the conclusion that on the basis of your being a liberal Democrat or, or, or my being a conservative Republican or what have you, that you're just a communist or I'm just a fascist and your human value is reduced to nil because of that, then there's no reason to invest in institutions anymore because they could only ever be, uh, be bludgeons uh, to socially and politically punish the other side. And so on that level, I do consider polarization to be a spiritual issue, even if it's not necessarily mm. a religious one, so to speak. What I'm hearing from both of you, though, is that we're going to have to just trust people to be good. And I'm like, that's that doesn't sound like a good plan, um, <laughs> you know, uh, at all. And 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 also that means that in terms of engagement, uh, you know, it has to be one on one because it sounds like a, a cultural issue to fix then. Um, and, and it doesn't scale systems scale. Right. But but human beings, um, if if it requires to build trust one on one, doesn't really quite scale. It, it's going to take, I don't know, forever to, to do that, if at all. Um, and, you know, I think one of the problems here is that I think with political polarization, that's one thing, right? So you can have a different opinion on, say, the abortion issue, or you can have a different opinion on what the marginal tax rate should be for billionaires. Um, and I can have a different one. But where things really, really fall apart, I think, is when we have a complete disagreement over values, mm-hmm. right? And how do you bridge the value gap? Because if we don't have the same values or if the term, meaning we don't even agree to the basic fundamental terms of debate, how do we even start having a conversation? Because I think that's where we are. Um, Since the election of Donald Trump, increasingly you have seen this divergence where instead of the other side being wrong, the other side's actually evil, like Mm -hmm. completely evil and not worth engaging with. And I... I wonder how we're going to reverse that trend, especially with the methods available to us. Well, I I do want to correct the impression that I may be giving you, that we need to rely on people to be good. Speaking to people's conscience is not relying on people to be good. You speak to their conscience because you need to, because otherwise they're going to keep being bad. (laughs) Right. (laughs) See, Martin Luther King Jr. is my role model. And the nonviolent philosophy that he represented, that he believed in, that he taught, is what I seek to ultimately leaven the work of depolarization with. And the success of that movement in genuinely changing the hearts of Americans, right, is something that I think, and it did, which isn't to say that it solved all problems, but I think it's a genuine testament to the power of his approach. Martin Luther King Jr. was not relying on George Wallace to be just be a good person. But by the end of George Wallace's life, he had changed his mind. He had changed his heart on the idea that black people were inferior to white people and not entitled to uh, and not titled to equal dignity and equal treatment before the law. And uh, Shirley Chisholm herself, if I recall correctly, and I think you can find an article by Christina Hoff Summers uh, detailing this and in uh, wonderful detail, uh, wound up establishing a friendship uh, with him, or at least a relationship with Wallace, towards the end of his life uh, that was only made possible by this change of heart. Jerry Falwell is is another who would have been adamantly on the side of segregationists uh, in in Jim Crow segregation in the 1960s, who 
changed his point of view as time went on, you know, uh, and whether, you know, that was posturing on his part or not, I would like to think it was sincere, but it was genuinely sincere for many people in the rural South uh, who had very different social points of view, but over time came to change. And what King did was he spoke a message which said that those who are in the throes of racist hatred are not irredeemable. I love them because love is what animates those of us who believe in the human capacity for redemption that is implied by the idea that we are made in the image of God. And yet, Dr. King also made the point that these were people who were caught in the sickness of sin, if you will, in the sickness of racism in a way that was damaging society and damaging themselves. It was not something to be retreated from. It was something to be stood up to but with the moral force of speaking truth to power rather than personally condemning your opponents, right? There's a difference between those two, yeah. but it still requires you to stand firm. It still requires you to resist. And so, you know, mm. um, if, if what, and, and King, you know, engaged similar criticisms in his own time after King died, he had uh, some folks, yeah, somebody within the black power movement, said, and there's a whole history of King's relationship to the Black Power Movement, but some, somebody in the Black Power Movement said that, you know, the next person who came along, you know, preaching nonviolence ought to be uh, treated violently and whatnot, that King's philosophy of nonviolence died with him and should be allowed to die with him. And yet in the aftermath of his death, things really did change and they changed during his life. But to your question about how it scales, um, you know, it's, it's a question that we get all the time. Braver Angels is seeking to establish not just one-off conversations for interpersonal depolarization, but sort of a systematic way of building an ecosystem that reinforces a depolarizing and more deeply sort of empathetic and unifying sort of culture of democracy that can then begin to export the norms that are generated within it back out across the sort of institutional landscape of American society. And whether it's Brave Angels or, 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 or FAIR or any number of other organizations, to me, that's the thing that has to be accomplished. So the container we're creating is one in which we tell a story that is meant to be unifying for Americans, not giving short shrift to our differences, but making the case that we still have a common investment in a shared project of democracy. People come into our community, they participate in the workshops, they organize together, they get to know people on the other side, they learn ways of communicating that that stand in stark contrast to what we get at, you know, I hate to say it, but many universities, many DEI programs, certainly watching cable news, left or right, right? And then they take that understanding, they take those skills back with them to, to, to their place of business, back with them to their classroom, back with them to their local community, back with them to their kitchen table. We're still a relatively small organization. But part of the flexibility of the social media age, the fact that you guys are here doing this podcast without the permission of NBC or ABC or anything like that, means that <laughs> we can begin to create structures that, if we have the basic spirit of goodwill between us, can then create contexts in which we can be able to, we can manage to export that spirit, to cross, to pollinate that spirit out in various different institutional directions, to create a systematic way of building the momentum of goodwill in society. But I do agree with you, that strategy needs to be there because if it's not, 
we might know how to have a conversation, you and I, Melissa, that allows us to engage our disagreements and walk out of it on the other side, you know, feeling like we understand each other more deeply and, and are committed to each other mm. on a level of goodwill. But if we can't find a way to scale that up in democracy and in, in, in various different sorts of, you know, places that we're talking about, um, it's not going to be enough. So I do agree that that is yeah. that is the priority. It's this is actually perfect. It reminds me of something that my wife and I were talking about yesterday. Mm. And maybe maybe having you approach this more pointed question could be illuminating. Um, we were basically talking about, you know, um, yeah, it's 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 all well and good and it's beautiful to to try to appeal to the humanity of another person and mm. try to be the bigger person in that sort of scenario when, you know, if maybe they're hurling invective or if they hold views that are, that are antithetical to yours and the way that you think the world should be. But how, you know, the question was basically how, how am I supposed to engage with someone who, let's say if I'm, if I'm a gay person and I'm engaging with someone who believes that gay people shouldn't exist, Mm -hmm. right? How am I supposed to talk to somebody like that? What, what can I possibly say or do? How, how is there any potential to engage in any kind of meaningful or productive way with someone who doesn't even want me to be here, mm-hmm. right? Who wants to erase my existence is the way that you always hear it. How would you, how would you engage with that? How would you deal with that sort of challenge? Yeah. I mean, you know, people on the left, the, in the social justice left have a, have a phrase, you know, so many phrases and, and, and one in particular sort of applies to, to, the problem here, you know, like, I don't want to do the emotional labor. Why should I have to take on board the emotional labor of engaging with somebody who's going to deny my humanity and conservatives and, and, and just left of center, right of center people uh, don't use that language as much, but it's, they, they go through the exact same thing really. And the hard truth of this is that, you know, let me qualify this by saying that every opportunity to speak to somebody who has a bitterly kind of, you know, offensive or repulsive, you know, point of view to you, it's not necessarily one that you should or need to take, right? So I'm not necessarily asking everybody to be sort of, uh, you know, a, a Gandhi-like, you know, <laughs> uh, depolarization <laughs> culture warrior in every moment. But to the degree to which this may become necessary, and it is on a larger level necessary for some of us to have these conversations, you have to have an internal sort of, an internal fortitude that allows you to see the human being behind the hatred, behind the Mm -hmm. anger and behind the ignorance. You have to be able to sustain your own capacity to absorb that anger that ignorance, that vitriol, to listen to see where the pain may be coming from, to listen to see what the actual moral ideal or moral foundation that this person, maybe in an utterly distorted way, is actually trying to defend. You have to be able to listen long enough to be able to identify that. Take it all on board. Understand that it's not about you. They're genuinely the one who is sick in the situation. What you want to do is keep from catching that sickness yourself. So that you don't start reciprocating, you know, the bile, if you will. And then demonstrate the fact that you've heard the individual, you understand what it is they're saying, and then make your point in a way that can speak to 
whatever it is they're genuinely feeling in a way that, you know, they will hear them, that will signal to them the fact that you're not fundamentally their enemy. This is what nonviolence is about in communication, philosophical nonviolence. And it's what Daryl Davis demonstrated in his willingness to engage with literal members of the Ku Klux Klan. Let us not forget, <laughs> you know, uh, spending countless hours getting to know them one by one. People who very literally were, you know, if not denying his humanity outright, denying the idea that his humanity implied an equality, you know, with, 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 with them as, as supposedly, you know, superior human beings. He was able to take all of that and ultimately, you know, speak to some of their deeper concerns and demonstrate the quality of his own character in a way that caused them to reflect on the things they'd been saying and realize, holy, you know, holy God, I've been believing something all of this time that isn't true. But, you know, you think of Daryl Davis had got into those conversations laying out, you know, all of the facts of, you know, not to, not to be dismissive of anybody else, but if he had just gone in and said, like, you know, first of all, let me tell you about 1619, and then let me tell you about red line. Yeah. Then let me tell you about science. Right? <laughs> now let me show you, you know, you know that, that, that you're an idiot here. Nobody responds to that. And it's not to say that there's not a real important place for, for debate and, you know, sort of like, you know, having that conversation out, having that competitive conflict out over who's right and wrong on a, on a given issue. I, I think that that's particularly relevant in political contexts where decisions need to be made in real time, right? We've got to debate a bill. Uh, this bill is going to come up for a vote in three or four weeks. The media is communicating information on that. It's a question of data. It's a question of empirical analysis. It is a question of values. But, you know, time is ticking down on, on the clock. And, you know, we've got to compare the points. And hopefully we have enough goodwill towards each other to recognize the fact that either one of us could be wrong, but we've got to come to a decision. And so let's hash it out and see where the logic leads us. There's a place for that. Democracy needs that. But when we get to more fundamental divisions of the type that Melissa was speaking to, the antidote to that, assuming we do not wish to embrace the alternative of physical violence eventually, because I would argue that there is an alternative to the nonviolent approach, but it is violence and it may not, you know, it, it may not become full scale tomorrow, but you see it creeping up, you feel it creeping up even now and you know it will accelerate. Right. The only way to restore that undergirding of shared values is to start by under, is by reestablishing that that deeper undergirding of shared goodwill for common humanity. You got to get even more baseline than the Declaration of Independence, to be frank. But if you can do that, and I think that's what we have to do, you know, at this point in many cases, you can build from there. And Daryl Davis. Uh, you know, is, is one example of that. King is an example of that. There are examples of this through history. You know, it's this way of being that informs the great spiritual traditions, that informs Christianity, that informs, I think, so much of Hinduism, that, that, that informs, um, you know, uh, I think, the ways of being that have allowed us to come together across even deeper divides uh, in the past. Usually you got to go through violence. Usually that's what happens. You know, it's nonviolent movements don't usually emerge, but people do usually reflect on the consequence and cost of violence in ways that kind of motivate us 
to be more nonviolent and to go deeper with each other going forward. Part of the problem of today's age is that in part through technology, through our amusing ourselves to death, through material wealth, <laughs> more and more of us, as we get further away from the world wars, from, from even the civil rights movement, more and more of us are, are less and less acquainted with the pain of violence, with destruction, with what it is to have an economy completely collapse, right? We, we're, we're, many of us are so comfortable, you know, that we don't take seriously the idea that, you know, our casual sort of, you know, contempt for each other could lead to societal circumstances that, you know, most of us millennials and Gen Z folks ain't ready for. And we haven't read enough history to really understand the difference between between play fascists and real fascists, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes down to, you know, where the rubber hits the road. But we'll turn each other into fascists eventually if we keep going in this, in this way. And so this is why uh, we've got to see this in terms of violence and nonviolence. And I say nonviolence with a capital N, because I'm not just talking about abstaining from physical conflict. I'm talking about the affirmative embrace of the spiritual power of love as a vehicle for social change. Wow. Yeah. It's a, I think it's, it's interesting because the dynamic we're putting down here um, is, is sort of, you know, it's not like, as you said, it's not that we're relying on people to be good. It's that we're recognizing that there is good in everyone and that we can tease it out if we do it right. There's a potential there that we can try to seize. But on the other side, it's almost like the alternative is relying on people to be bad and then just sort of acting on that assumption and where that gets us versus where what we're talking about gets us. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think I hear what you're, I think I do hear what you're getting at because you do have to, you do wind up sort of whether in a conscious way or a default kind of way. Either having faith in the idea that no matter how bad somebody and a group of people in general may be acting in the moment, that there's goodness that can be reached, or you have confidence in the idea that at a certain point, people have crossed the, you know, the line of no return, and there's no changing their behavior, and so we have to arm ourselves. And you, know, you may not be thinking about that directly in terms of violence. You may be thinking of that in terms of, okay, we've got to win the election, we've got to you know, uh, uh, raise up our own institutions. We've got to put in place various safeguards and so forth uh, to be able to protect our own ground. You know, maybe we've got to, you know, um, undermine the Constitution a little bit. Maybe we got to manipulate the rule of law. Maybe we got to lie a little bit ourselves. See, that's what winds up happening. We wind up becoming right. more like sort of, you know, the things we condemn on the other side, because it's justified because they did it first. Right. And so even if the other side is, you know, on some metric metric based level worse than us, the pattern winds up amounting to a race to the bottom uh, in terms of the way we behave and the way we act. But my point there is that that always ends in violence. Eventually you can't sustain that as a status quo, as an equilibrium, you know, every step forward is either a step towards something that's progressing towards a more sort of Kimian nonviolent kind of kind of next step in the societal evolution or something that's devolving towards something that takes us, you know, into warfare. It's 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 it's, it's, it's the civil rights movement or it's the civil war in my mind. Right. That's the dualism that I see. I wonder if one when you were talking about Daryl, I was just thinking about a couple 
you know, antidotes. Um, one of the things, you know, I don't know, I've seen this, I live in LA now. So, you know, I've seen those stupid people magazine at the checkout counter. They have this page like celebrities, they're just like us. And it's just like pictures of people like pushing, <laughs> pushing carts and things like that. I think With fake noses and, and all that. Yeah, right, but they're, they're doing normal things just like the rest of us. Right. So I think that's what Daryl was so successful at. You know, he, especially being a traveling uh, musician, a jazz musician, yeah. was able to inspire some of these KKK members to go like, whoa, this guy is really talented. He's just he plays music just like any, any old good white guy, you know, so talented. Mm-hmm. And um, having that allowed him to really use that as a vehicle to, to bridge that gap. And, and with regard to, I don't know, I guess, you know, what you said, the love uh, as, as the vehicle for social change, my God, that is such a hippie concept. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think there is, you know, like when, just personal antidote, when I was trying to convince my mom at the time when my sister came out, she, you know, she came out to her out of the closet. Yeah. Um, she was very religious and she opposed the, she's Christian. She opposed the whole thing. And of course it caused a big rift, right? But at the end of the day, the, this, uh, instead of denouncing her as some sort of homophobe and everything, which, you know, is, is par for the course today, mm-hmm. understand that from her perspective, her opposition to it was actually motivated by love. She just yeah. didn't want to see her daughter go to hell. Right. If you understand that, and you understand that sometimes people come to the wrong decisions, mm-hmm. you know, because of love, ironically, and we see that a lot today, that maybe there's an inroad. Of course, we're nicer to our family than we are to some random stranger on Twitter, right? And we don't understand the full context of how this person came to be and how they came to see the world. And, but I, I do think that these, you know, these two, there is some mechanism in, in these two, th- in these two examples I gave that, that can kind of help bridge gaps between people, you know, com- two people who seem like they have a chasm, like a unassailable chasm between them. Um, and I don't know if you have any other uh, ideas or, or, or recommendations for, you know, because at, um, you know, a fair, like that's something that we're trying to do too. We're trying to promote this uh, culture of common understanding. And, and right now, especially with, if you think of all the debates going on in the country, you know, it seems like the pendulum is swinging like the other way, right? There, there is a backlash to a lot of the, the um, kind of inflammatory uh, race narrative that's been in the media. And now you see the Republicans trying to pass these bills and everything. And so we're, we're in this period where we're kind of seeing, you know, pendulum swing. And, and those of us are, are, are like, whoa, a little horrified by what's going on. But where do you see this going? Does it resolve in some synthesis? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think that it becomes a question of what we do. Honestly, you know, you and me and Angel, fair, brave angels and everybody listening, right? I mean, I think that this really is a unique time in human history. The basic dynamics of human nature are sort of unchanged. But again, you combine it with the technology issue, you combine it with the sort of structural changes in politics or demographic changes and many other things, you know, sort of the receding, I think, of maybe deeper spiritual commitments, uh, you know, the, the kind of, oh, I don't know, it's one thing, one thing after another. But I think that part of my larger critique of modern society and kind of liberal society is that long before information technology, we became so impressed by our own intelligence 
that we thought that moral and social progress was largely a function of getting the right answers through proper calculation, you know, and that if you've got the right argument, that should be enough to persuade other people of it and to, or to justify powerful people centralizing power and influence, you know, within their own hands without having to listen to other folks, right? And I think that part of what's got to come back now, you know, which was captured in, in the nonviolent and, you know, King was generally politically liberal, but it was captured in, in the nonviolence uh, of, of Dr. King. It was captured in the conservatism of Russell Kirk, right? That was where the conservative movement began before it sort of went in another direction and now in a totally other direction, I would argue, is in emphasizing the idea that, you know, the true substance of human goodness does not come from precisely from your ideological or political or social opinions. It starts with you, who you are on the level of character, on the level of virtue. You know, are you honorable? Are you courageous? Are you compassionate? You know, are you fair? Are you wise? Are you understanding? Right? Do you bring hope? Do you have integrity? A person can have all of those things and be way to the left, way to the right. That's my bottom line reality. Mm. Now, you know, I think that, you know, part of the classic intellectual virtues, you know, intellectual humility, so forth, you know, part of what comes with that is an open-mindedness that allows us to take in new information and change and evolve in our views. Part of what's terrible today is that we valorize stubbornness. We valorize not changing our minds. We've confused that for integrity, right? The fact that I believe this and I'm not going to change because this is right and, and that's wrong. And I know that that's wrong because I know that you're wrong, right? Flip-flops, I don't like it, right? Flip-flops, um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, I'm being simplistic here. And it is possible yeah. for people to change their <laughs> political expediency, and that's not good either. But what I'm saying is that this is a virtue question. And love in King's vernacular was a virtue, right? Agape love. And, and he would, by the way, he would draw the distinction between agape love, a love of overarching goodwill. Now, there's a difference between that and like affection uh, and certainly, you know, romance and so forth. But that, that King said, he said, you know, when, when God said to love your neighbor, he said, he said, I'm very glad he, he, he said, he said, I'm very glad he didn't say to like your neighbor. And he talked about Bull Connor and so forth. He, you know, he said, he said, I love, you know, you know, these men. He said, I would find it very difficult, he said, to say that I liked, you know, George Wallace. Very difficult to say that he liked Bull Connor and, and so forth, you know. Because like is, you know, that's that's a that's a nice thing where you can have it. Um, but that's not a deep moral commitment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh the moral power is in wishing good for people who, you know, would would wish ill upon you, but that's also what allows you to change those people, you know. And even beyond that, even if you can't change somebody, it's what allows you to endure their contempt so that you don't find yourself drowning, you know? Uh, When we we make this an internal conversation, you know, about what it really means to be a good person, regardless of your politics, then we will start fixing our politics. Yeah. Now, uh, John, I know we're we're coming close to the edge of your your time here, but... And I didn't expect, actually, I didn't plan to ask you about this. But before we get to the final question that we ask every guest, I really wanted to get you on record talking about 
the slap heard around the world. We were discussing <laughs> it a little bit yesterday. And and I didn't plan on asking you about it, but it seems to me that it's it's uh, it's reflective of so many of the things that we're talking about right now. Um, you know, I think you you spoke very eloquently about it yesterday when we had a phone call, and I would love it if you just would reiterate a little bit of that for for our listeners and our viewers. And of course, we're talking about the the Chris Rock Will Smith thing, which hopefully by the time this comes out will be totally irrelevant and <laughs> and will have passed. <laughs> but yeah, I was gonna say I don't think people have, uh, have been talking about this enough. We need to make sure. Yeah. This more. Let's get some more conversation. Um, <laughs> But no, I, I did consider it to be a remarkable moment. I think a lot of things, you know, collided. I mean, you know, on, on the one hand, I mean, I think that there's a way in which there's, there's a larger sort of, you know, kind of honor culture that is in vogue in various parts of American popular, popular culture and certainly in many respects has been in vogue in, in hip hop and a certain version of kind of black culture. And then I, I felt like, you know, that kind of that kind of wound up colliding with sort of a sensitivity over humor, over comedy that is, you know, censorious. Right. And it sort of produced this moment where suddenly the sort of, you know, masculine thing to do was to physically shut down somebody who was saying something that was making, you know, Will and Jada uncomfortable uh, in uh, in in a way that stood in stark contrast to the larger sort of values of tolerance and and love um, and compassion that are meant to be sort of hallmarks of in this case the the the, the sort of self understood definition of the cultural left it was something that happened in a moment that undressed that for the whole world in real time and was then reinforced by the actual was standing ovation for what many people took as kind of real-time doublespeak in terms of, you know, the commitment that Will Smith gave in his speech to being a vessel of love in contrast to the thing he had just done. And if he had apologized to Chris Rock in real time, he could have sustained that because he could have acknowledged the contradiction and it would have made the apology meaningful. But by essentially apologizing in a way that held him up to a certain moral standard that he clearly just violated without actually repenting to the person that he had just done harm to, I, th I think it left the whole world just kind of looking at that or so much of the world looking at that, you know, and, and saying to themselves, okay, this is, this is the truth in terms of the moral decay that's, that's happened. Like you can't, you can't deny it. I think even for people who were, you know, in the in the room, I think there is the type of thing where I imagine you could feel it, but you couldn't stop it. Right now, I do want to say that, you know, what I'm saying here is a little bit of a simplification, to be sure, because I actually really like Will Smith. I think Will Smith is a Same. good guy. I, I think that he was Same. I think he had a mental breakdown because I think the guy lives a high level and, and very kind of in many respects, <laughs> you know, I mean. You just say he lives a weird life and I'm not casting judgment, but I'm just saying that, you know, when you're in a position like that, uh, things get under your, under your skin, into your head. And it all just came out. Um, yeah. I think that many people were applauding him because they love him. He's their friend. They, you know, spend all this time celebrating him. But it, it, but it was a moment that still revealed 
deep moral hypocrisy wedded to power and privilege that I think may ultimately prove to be a good thing because it may cause us to reckon with ourselves a little bit, right? In terms of what our moral priority, what our priorities actually are as, as, as a people, what do we really stand for as opposed to what we say we, we represent. And so to the degree to which it might set the stage for some deeper reflection, for some come to Jesus moments, so to speak, I think it might actually prove uh, to be a good thing. And, um, you know, and I hope it ultimately winds up being a good thing for Will, uh, uh, for Will as well. You know, I will say that, uh, before we move on to the last question, that one, one thing I was shocked about, among all the bad takes of this um, incident, is uh, the fact that there are actually slap truthers out there who don't believe oh, that this really happened. Like, there are a, a whole yeah. bunch of people yeah. who actually yeah, think this man. was staged still. Um, <laughs> that, that surprises me. Like, like, who is this good for that they would stage it? Like, okay, the Ratings? Ratings. Ratings. Yeah. They got like yeah. a 10%, but okay, that, that was worth losing your biggest- A career, yeah. Embarrassing yeah. the entire industry. Right. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't want to be demeaning to anybody who's who's suspicious here because I've heard from a, f- a few of those folks too. Yeah, 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 too. Yeah. But you, know, you just can't um, believe anything anymore, though. You know, like that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all right, John. Um, so, focus at fair is providing a pro-human perspective to you know the major issues that um, that we're dealing with in society. What does pro-human mean to you, and how can everyday people embody that? Yeah, well, for me, pro-human means that we center our estimate of the value of people on the basis of the fact that they are created with dignity because we have dignity and expect to be treated with dignity ourselves. You are like me, Melissa. I am like you. We're not exactly the same. We've got a whole bunch of differences. But on a fundamental level, you know, we come into this world breathing the same air, drinking the same water, and having the same deeper human needs. And so we ought strive to, to help one another flourish, you know, according to being able to realize those needs, recognizing the fact that my ability to do that is somehow connected to your ability to do that. I have a moral obligation to you uh, on the basis of the fact that we are human. You know, we should romanticize humanity a bit in that way, you know? Um, And I think that we can do that if we remember that the way to do that is to give permission to yourself to truly love, to truly love humanity and the things that we share as human beings. Because I do think that love is the core virtue that animates all the others, at the end of the day, anyway. Um, And um, that's the starting point from which we can arrive at a beloved community as Martin Luther King Jr. would have said. You know, if you ever start a religion, sign me up. I'm, I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in. <laughs> well, Angel, that'll be our next project, buddy. Let's, let's, let's work one up. And, uh, oh, I'm already ordained. He's ready ordained. to call Angel. I've, I've, yeah. yeah. Well, that's cool. I'm already ordained. I've got one wedding under my belt. I've, oh, I, I, just got, I just got ordained too. I'm marrying, uh, marrying my friend uh, Kim Iverson. What? Yeah. Oh, oh, really? Wow. <laughs> I don't know. Well, there you go. Look, I Melissa, we're already started. I don't right. know if for that to be a secret or not, um, but uh, I got my I got my ID card and and everything. Yeah. I got it in my wallet somewhere. But yeah. All right, I'll, I'm joining the cult. It there starts as a cult first, and then then a proper religion when we get the, n- the numbers sure. up. That's it. John Wood Jr., thank you so much for joining us at Fair Perspectives. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. 
Thank you for listening to Fair Perspectives. If you'd like to support the show, you can do it by subscribing on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform and leaving us a positive rating and review. You can also access exclusive podcast content, such as Q&As and bonus episodes, by visiting us and signing up at fairperspectives.org. For weekly fair news and opinion pieces by members of the fair community, visit our Substack at fairforall.substack.com and tune into Fair News Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to join or support the pro-human movement, visit us at fairforall.org slash join us. Thanks again and see you next time.